So our passage this morning is bookended by identical warnings. So it opens up there in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. And it comes to a close. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. So it's bookended by those two warnings, and both convey the same general idea. That is, being conned or tricked. Being duped into a bad deal. And it's quite a bad deal. These Colossians are being handed... They're being given empty philosophy and human tradition, and being taken from them is Christ. So the Apostle Paul gives them quite a stern warning, be on guard, see to it that no one takes you captive lest you give the game away. And it's quite something that is being offered to the Colossians here. It receives um, description at various points. First, verse 16, it says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And then verse 18, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize, delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Now, some elements of this particular blend of philosophy and tradition and even religion are clear, but others are not so much. Now, what is clear is there in verse 16, which is the distinctly Jewish element to this teaching. There are certain dietary restrictions, likely kosher, right? Um, Eating these foods and not those foods. Um, Mandatory festivals and rites, including Sabbath observance. And it appears that the Colossians were judged according to these standards. So you can imagine a charismatic leader teaching and leading the unlearned away by insisting that kosher and Sabbath observance are necessary, and that without them, one's spirituality, one's faith is weak or deficient. Now, the less clear teaching is in regard to verse 18. Now, apparently, by depriving themselves of necessary food and sleep, among other things, these teachers or the proponents of this uh, sort of pseudo-religion would induce mystical visions. Now, it's hard to say exactly what, but there is a strong supernatural streak in this teaching, an unhealthy preoccupation with angels and other spiritual beings. Now, regardless of its true nature, and all these reconstruction projects are, are, are mere Um, well, there's speculation at worst, and they're close to the truth at best, but regardless of the true nature of what was being taught, this philosophy or tradition was being made the standard. And that's what's important. Something else was being set alongside Christ as absolutely necessary. Now, the implicit or explicit message is that Christ is insufficient. Something more is needed 
And that is what these spiritual beings and these practices provide. So who knows how the message was actually couched, but clearly the key to spiritual progress resided in certain dietary restrictions, in strict Sabbath observance, and these mystical experiences. This was how you made progress. Now, Christ has his part to play, but he must give way to these things. And this is what the apostle wants the Colossians to be on guard against. It is, he says, according to the tradition of men, rather than according to Christ. These teachers, verse 19, are not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body grows with the growth which is from God. And there we run into trouble. When other things encroach upon the head, Jesus Christ, and challenge his supremacy. Now, it's not that these other things um, that are being advocated for here are necessarily bad. We have fasting uh, constantly recommended to us in the scriptures. Um, Sabbath, though no longer required, is a good practice. And eating kosher, also though no longer required, is something the New Testament permits. Even visions of angels and so on and so forth. These are all very common. So it's not that they're bad and the apostle is against them specifically. It's that they are made the standard. And that judgment is being rendered according to them. Meaning that because you do not keep these practices... Because you do not do as these particular teachers say, your faith is either suspect or altogether invalid. They're rendering judgment based on these things. So something other than Christ is being made the measuring line for the church. Some other criteria is being allowed to determine who is in and who is out. And when that happens when we give ourselves to some other um, criteria of judgment, two errors are made. The first is that the centrality of Christ is undermined, and the second is that the church is unnecessarily divided. As we've said, Christ is the sole measuring line, the lone criteria, and nothing else, no matter how seemingly important, can impinge upon him. So if I were to judge you because you do not hold this particular theological conviction or because you do not vote that particular way, I'm no longer holding fast to the head. What I've done is set up another standard alongside Christ and I've judged you on the basis of that standard. Thus, the church, the body of Christ, is divided when it need not be. And it's this situation that the apostle addresses in another uh, epistle, that to the Romans, where brothers and sisters were passing judgment on each other in non-essential matters. In fact, it was the very same issues that we're dealing with here in Colossians. Um, Romans 14, verses 1 through 3. The apostle says, Now, the one who is weak in faith... No, he says, excuse me. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, 
but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. He says one person has faith that he may eat all things. That's someone who is clearly not holding to uh, the Old Testament dietary restrictions. They can eat anything. And he says, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. So compared to the centrality of Christ, the apostle calls these other matters, there in verse 1, mere opinions. And he gives the right to each to hold their own opinion. Later on in chapter 14, he says, Let each one be fully convinced in their own mind. Because they're serving Christ, they're serving the Lord, and not your opinions. So we're not to pass judgment upon one another in these secondary matters. Now, should we have spirited debate? Yes. Should there be room for argument and persuasion among the various opinions and convictions that we hold? Sure. But broken fellowship, judging one another, creating some system of ranking because of these judgments? No. Therefore, as our passage says, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or, again, anything else for that matter that is not the lone criteria, which is the Lord. So, the apostle tells the Colossians, okay, don't worry about this. They're, they're passing judgment on you that's invalid. So how does he combat this pernicious and judgmental teaching? What does he do? How does he instruct the Colossians? And he does so with some full-blooded theology. He declares to the Colossians once again, as he's been doing throughout this epistle, remember verses chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, he reminds them once again of the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And if the problem could be boiled down to its irreducible minimum, it would be ignorance. The Colossians do not know Christ as he is. They are accepting, or at least tempted to accept, this reduced version of Christ that the teachers are feeding to him. One uh, uh, version of Christ that needs to be supplemented. A Christ who also needs the Sabbath and who needs the dietary restrictions and who needs these mystical visions. So on the contrary, the apostle tells the, the Colossians, he tells them that Christ is all the church needs. Nothing more and nothing less. So uh, backtracking now to verses 16 and 17, which read, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival, festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Then he says, Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the rites and practices the teachers proclaim as the substance, or as the thing you need for your faith, are in fact mere shadows. They belong to a time prior to Christ, in other words. 
and now they are no longer valid. All the rites of the Old Testament and all the institutions of the Old Covenant, circumcision, purity, regulations, the Sabbath, and etc., these are but a shadow cast by Christ standing on the cusp of human history. And now that He, the substance, has come, they are no longer necessary. They were permitted for a time. They were required for a time because they were witnessing to Christ, but now He's here, and they have no abiding significance. So one may practice them, as we saw in Romans 14 and other places in the Scripture, One can still observe the Sabbath. One can still partake of the dietary restrictions, even circumcision, all these different things. But they no longer have binding force. They're not explicitly necessary. And so it is with anything that is set along Christ. He is always the substance. And anything else that's set alongside Him can only be a shadow. So our pet issues and I have many of them, are always secondary. Our cherished traditions and practices are a means and not an end. Christ blows everything else out of the water. He is always to have the central place. Hence, the apostle says, um, has this to say, rather, about the spiritual beings and the mystical visions that these teachers hold in so high regard. So he says Christ is the substance, and then he says this in verse 15. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. Um, Again, um, shorthand there for spiritual beings, rulers and authorities. He made a public display of, of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, if anything, the cross appears to be an utter and total defeat. Jesus' mighty prophetic ministry comes to a tragic end at the hands of brute and unchecked political power. In fact, the cross could be described in the terms that are used here in verse 15. Disarmed, public display, triumphed over. Is not that the message that crucifixion is designed to send? Is that not why it was devised in the first place? Why the Romans would line the road with crucified men and women? To disarm, to make a public display, to triumph over them? So Jesus hangs there upon the cross. And no one can see the truth of what is actually going on. So he looks. He's made impotent and powerless. He's disarmed. His shame and suffering are made a public display He's suspended between heaven and earth for everyone to gawk at. And what more could be derived from his death than that he's been triumphed over by religious corruption and by sheer military power? And yet, this is precisely what happened to the spiritual powers on the cross. Here, verse 15. It was they and not Christ who were disarmed, who were publicly shamed and who were triumphed over. Whatever claim to supremacy and authority they might have had, it is now entirely gone. Christ, the apostle says, verse 10, is the head of all rule and authority. So, 
the appearance of the cross. The truth of it is radically reversed. Christ is the one who triumphs. So once again, what the apostle does here is he takes the legs out from this pseudo-religion. These spiritual beings, right? whatever sort of visions they were um, having, um, whatever sort of mystical experience that um, these teachers were promoting, whatever it was, it can't deliver anything more than Christ because all these spiritual powers, the apostle says, are firmly situated beneath Christ in the heavenly hierarchy. Right? They were supposed to lead to some new spiritual heights, but he's saying that they've remained on the lowest rung. You're not going any higher than what you have in Christ. So once more, this, the same applies for whatever spiritual fads sweep through the church. It can deliver nothing more than what is already ours in Christ. There is no, see, there is no need, rather, to seek a new thing, right? to find some new practice, some new teacher, some new this, that, or the other that is going to deliver something new to you, something extra to you, because we already have it. You already have it in Christ. So, let's take a step back. I just want to ask, so what can we say then about this religion the, the false teachers proposed? Well, it promised new spiritual heights and profound mystical experience, but it failed to deliver on all accounts. And rather than being genuinely spiritual, as it proclaimed to be, it was fleshly to the bone. Continuing his critique, look at what the apostle says now in verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So what could be more seemingly spiritual than angelic visions? Right? And you can see why this teaching would have been attractive. You can imagine if some trusted authorities came into our church and started talking about these you know, exalted and glorious visions that were being given to them of the angels and the celestial powers worshiping before God, this, that, and the other. It's going to get people's attention. It's going to draw them in. And it looks right on the surface like very spiritual, very profound and wow, these people must be far beyond where we are at in their devotion and on and on. But instead, the Apostle Paul says that all of this is the product of a fleshly mind. Again, the end of verse 18, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. It's not an authentic spirituality that is being peddled to the Colossians. At least it's not a spirituality of the Christian kind. It has this and that going for it, but what it doesn't have, he says, is the Spirit. And it fails in one crucial respect. Now down to verse 23. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So despite all the uh, super spirituality of this religion, it failed to do the most important thing, and that is to handle the flesh. 
It turns out mystical visions and contact with supernatural beings do nothing to help one stop sinning. They are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So it has the appearance of wisdom. It looks good and it sounds good according to whatever worldly standard, but it leaves someone in the same place that they started. It claims to change, but it does not have real power. And so it's going to be for whatever else we put our hope in that is not Jesus Christ. It promises deliverance. It promised this, that, and the other, but it could give nothing because it all comes from Christ. So, that leads us now to this next part. If this pseudo-religion is merely another manifestation of the flesh, right, if it doesn't really help us to make progress in the spiritual life, the question is, well, what is genuine spirituality? Right? What, what does that actually look like? We've come to see the shadow as indeed a shadow. So what is the substance? Verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2. For in him, that is Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. So according to this pseudo-religion, mystical visions and communion with supernatural beings, including keeping kosher and the Sabbath, these things delivered the substance, right? They gave you what you needed for your Christian life. Something that Jesus could not give you. In other words, what they're saying is that Jesus gets us most of the way, but not the entire way. Right? Maybe he gets us 90%. But you need these other practices. You need these other experiences to make up the gap. So there remains a distance then between God and humanity that needs to be made up, the gap that needs to be closed. And this, again, is what these practices do. They bridge the gap. They take us further than Jesus. Now, in contrast, the apostle says, in him, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, meaning that there is no space between God and Christ so that we need something else to make up the distance. Christ, the Apostle Paul says, gets us the entire way. Nothing else is needed. There is no ground that needs to be made up. So the promoters of this teaching come along promising higher and a more profound spirituality, but the Apostle counters by saying, you already have it in Christ. In Him dwells the fullness of deity. So earlier, I said the problem was ignorance, and here it shows. The reason that this teaching had some purchase with the Colossians was because, apparently, their understanding of Christ was deficient. The message that they needed something more, a new experience or practice, was plausible to them. And it was plausible because their view of Christ was too low. It allowed them to entertain possible supplements. It allowed them to actually uh, possibly think, okay, maybe I do need these things alongside Christ. Again, the apostle counters. 
in him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So Christ is not an exalted angel. He's not the highest among spiritual powers. He's not a secondary divine principle or a lesser deity. Rather, the fullness of the transcendent creator dwells in him. Now, image is the metaphor that the apostle used previously in chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, if I look into a mirror, or you look into a mirror, what do you see? Well, you see your image, an exact duplication of yourself. Your physical features and your appearance are mirrored back to you. And so you can see yourself and know yourself. That is what Christ is to the Father, his image. The Father looks to Christ and he sees the fullness of his divinity mirrored back to him. The very same wisdom, the very same power, and the very same glory. Hebrews chapter 1, he is the exact representation of his being. So there is no remainder Again, this is what the Colossians have failed to grasp. The full transcendent God is here and Christ is here. And between them, there's some space. And that needs to be made up. And the apostle says there is no remainder or gap or distance between the Father and Christ. The fullness of the one is in the other. And this is what we must understand. Because this is what keeps us from the delusion that we need to complete ourselves with something else. That we need a a, a new gimmick or whatever it is to draw us nearer to God. In Christ, right, the one given to us in the four Gospels, the one who dwells in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, in Christ we are in contact with the fullness of the transcendent God, the highest glory and the deepest mystery. Nothing else and no one else can supplement or add to him. So, um, if you're rather new to the faith, this is why we are so inflexible about Jesus Christ. We believe that he is God's final word about himself to humanity. There is nothing more to say and nothing left to add. In Jesus of Nazareth, the man crucified on a hill outside Jerusalem and raised from the garden tomb on the third day, God is made known to us. In him, in that man, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So we speak about, as the church, the finality and the uniqueness of Christ. Nature, human reason, luminaries and prophets, they all teach us about God. We can know something of who He is through them, but they do not teach us like Christ teaches us. These gesture and they point toward God. They say that He's like this or He's like that, but Christ is the fullness of the deity in bodily form. He is the word of the Father, the image of the invisible God, the radiance of divine glory. So God is revealed to us in him unlike he is anywhere else or in anything 
else. So the buck stops with Christ, and that's why, again, we insist upon, at the cost of our very lives sometimes, the uniqueness and the finality of Christ. There is no other revelation. There is no other truth. There is no other salvation that can um, supersede or supplant or substitute Christ. So our conclusion is quite simple. We need nothing other than Christ. If we have him, we have everything. No one needs to go searching and those seasons of dryness or of uh, periods of, uh, of, of seeming absence. No one needs to go searching for the next spiritual key or, or, or the next this or that. Because in him, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All we need to do, all you ever need to do, is root yourself deeper in the rich soil that you've been planted in. You've been given it all. But the opposite is also true. Apart from Christ, we have nothing. So while the apostle accuses um, the proponents of this um, false teaching of not holding fast to the head, of not clinging to Christ and not honoring the truth about who he is, that's precisely what we must do. Verse 19, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments grows with the growth which is from God. So Christ is the fullness and the church only grows into the fullness of what it ought to be in him. The body is supplied by the head the apostle says. And apart from it, it's lifeless. Apart from Christ, the body can do nothing. So to not hold fast to the head is to dwell in a sterile and barren land, but to abide in him. To hold fast to the head is to bear much fruit. So again, and I found this the most challenging thing all week reading this passage, and let this be the necessary reminder that there is no growth for us in the Christian life. That is not growth in Christ. Right? There's no progress that's not progress deeper into him. Right? I, I don't become the person that God has called me to be apart from Christ. Those two go hand in hand. My progress into him is the only progress that's deeper. Right? What does Christ say? Abide in me and you will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So again, the apostle is underlining, underscoring, highlighting, putting in bold typeface again and again, Christ is everything. And without him, right, if we lose that focus, we've lost everything. doesn't matter how full or not full our church is. doesn't matter how great or not great our programs is. We've lost touch with the head. And so the body can only wither and die. So growth for us is growth with and in Christ. So now switching gears and coming to the home stretch. What this religion claims to deliver through rigorous adherence, severe treatment of the body, fasting and, 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 and utter devotion to uh, kosher and Sabbath and this, that, and the other, what it claims to deliver through rigorous adherence, the gospel has already delivered. 
It promises spiritual completion at the end of the road, but the gospel gives that completion up front. It's the difference between doing and done. Now, the gospel does demand that we do, right? But not that we might become complete. Instead, it demands that we do because we are complete. We do not work for completion, but from completion. Again, let me read 9 and 10 of chapter 2. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made, past tense, complete. Now, in my translation, some of yours don't read this way, in my translation, fullness um, and complete are two different words, um, obviously. But in the original, um, they're the same word. It's the Greek word pleureo. And so a more literal translation of this verse would read something like, In him dwells the fullness of deity bodily, and you are those who have been made full in him. So the fullness is in Christ, and you've been made full in him. So, so what's being told to us here is that we're plunged into this infinite sea of divine fullness. Christ's overwhelming fullness pours into our lives, and it fills us up into completion. Hence, completion is not something that comes to us at the end of a drawn-out process. It's given to us at the outset in Christ. We are made complete in Him. So we rightly see ourselves as a work in progress, right, with much work to be done before we can be stamped with the words complete. Yet God sees us quite differently. He sees us as complete in the completeness of Christ. It's already done, the apostle says, and it's merely unfolding in time. The whole lot was given to us at the beginning, the moment that we believed and confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. Now, unfolding... I think that's the right way to understand our growth um, and our maturity into who God has called us to be. It's kind of like a budding flower. All the elements are there within the bud. They're just taking time to open up. They're just taking time to grow into what's already there. Indeed, those botanical metaphors are some of the most common in Scripture. Seed, vines, fruits, and all the rest. It's only a process of emergence. You are complete, lacking nothing and needing nothing. Christ has given it to you, all of it. It's all there. It's just taking time, right? It's just going into the storehouse. It's just going, setting our roots deeper into what we already have. And so what's unfolding within us is genuine spirituality. It's the life of Christ. We died to our former incomplete lives, and we are born anew, into the fullness of Christ. Look at verse 13, and we'll wind things down. He says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. So in our former lives, we were not merely incomplete, but dead dead in transgressions and the uncircumcision of the flesh. 
And it's in that register, the movement from uncircumcision to circumcision, that the apostle describes our completion. We are complete because our former deadness has been stripped away on the cross. And we have been raised to new life with Christ. Our completeness derives from our union with Christ. But this profound truth is explained in the awkward rite of circumcision. And we need to understand it to get a hold of what the apostles is saying. In the Old Covenant, circumcision is essentially a symbolic act. Now, it was first instituted in Genesis 17 with Abraham. You guys know the story. A very old man to whom God promised to give a son. Now, because his wife was barren, they had tried and tried, and some time had passed, Abraham conspiring with his wife, took matters into his own hand and tried to produce an heir through another woman, um, his wife's servant. Now Abraham did father a son, but not according to God's plan. Ishmael was born, but Ishmael was of the flesh, right? He was of according to Abraham's own work, according to Abraham's own power, according to natural potency, right? Natural way of doing things. The promised child, God said, was not going to come through your wife's servant, but it's going to come through your wife, your barren wife. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 4, Abraham was as good as dead, and his wife's womb was also dead. So immediately following that incident uh, of where they try to take things into their own hands and bring about God's uh, plan through the flesh, God then reiterates the problem, excuse me, the promise to Abraham. He tells him, listen, you're going to have a son. And then he commands him to go cut off his foreskin. Hence, circumcision, given the context, is a symbolic castration. Circumcision is a repudiation of natural potency, of human power. And it's a declaration of faith in God's power. So on the one hand, circumcision distinguished the nation of Israel from the pagan nations, but it also served to declare the kind of people they were. These were spiritual people, not trusting in themselves the flesh. It had been cut away and done away with, but they trust in God who gives life to the dead. So circumcision is strange, but profoundly meaningful. And what circumcision symbolized becomes a reality in the new covenant. Listen to these amazing verses, 11 and 12. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So our circumcision is made without hands, which is to say that it comes from God. It's the Spirit who does it. It's not the biological flesh that's cut away, but the deadness of our hearts. Our flesh, that which was hostile and unpleasing to God, is rolled away on the cross and in our baptism through the Spirit so that we can walk in the Spirit. So our incompleteness is dealt with. The flesh is handled and we are transferred into a new, complete existence. So again, the point is this. Our sin and our flesh have already been handled in our conversion. 
right? We don't have to go looking for something else to take care of the problem. This is what the apostle was saying to the Colossians, right? 23, verse 23. This is not going to help you uh, against fleshly indulgence. You're, You're not getting any new tools to fight the battle. He says, it's already been won. The flesh has been cut away. It's been taken care of. So victory is not a matter of of striving harder. Victory is not a matter of doubling down. Rather, it's a matter of believing the truth and walking in it. In him you have been made complete. So skipping ahead a little bit, we'll come to this next week. The apostle says this in chapter 3, verse 5. Therefore, because you've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, And you've been raised with Christ. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So we're we're to consider ourselves, that's an important word, to consider it, ourselves dead to evil desires because we are dead to evil desires. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's true. The gospel proclaims it. The scripture attests to it. It happened in the cross. It's done. It's only now a matter of believing it, of reckoning it to be true and of our lives. Believing it and then working it out. Again, in in another passage, very similar to this one, Romans chapter 6, verse 11, the apostle says, Consider yourselves dead to sin. Consider it, because it's true. You're you're dead to it, and now you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, as we turn toward communion, I think that's the proper place to end. Because communion is given to us as a visible sermon. It preaches the gospel to us. We eat the truth, as it were. And it's a physical word, right? It it comes to us in, in these tangible physical elements, rather than merely uh, it being a mental word, because we're free to admit it, our faith is weak. We need reassurance, and we need tangible signs, especially when we feel in ourselves so far from being complete. So the bread and the cup are that sign. They are the sermon that God gives us that in Him, Christ, we've been made complete. His broken body is the confirmation that our sinful flesh has been cut away once for all. And His poured out blood is the testimony that our many transgressions have been forgiven. He has taken it out of the way, verse 14, having nailed it to the cross. So as we partake this morning, let's not partake with a dead faith just taking of the bread and drinking down the cup. The saving gospel is ministered to us here once again. So let us partake with faith, believing that in Him we have been made complete. So I invite you up now to receive the elements. Uh, Take them back to your table and believe the gospel. And we will partake in just a moment.